Greetings everyone, this is Manuela Arciniegas with the Andrews Family Fund and we are so delighted to have with us today some of the most powerful social justice movement partners here with the Andrews Family Fund and out in community. I am so excited that we have the blessing of their expertise, their brilliance, their vision, and all of the countless peoples and communities that they each respectively organize, have mentored, have developed as leaders. We are in for a really powerful treat. Today, we are talking about the importance of investing in the really powerful community-led solutions that really bring about safety, healing, and justice for young people ages 16 to 24, for all young people and their communities. So I'm going to get started and introduce you all to everybody. What I hope is that you will come away with this conversation with a reinvigorated sense to get out there and support the uprisings that have been taking place in our local communities, support the long-term endeavor of building power, support the really beautiful, bold, necessary work of advancing justice in our nation. Let's go ahead and jump in. Whoever would like to start, why don't you tell us your name, where you're calling in from, a little bit about yourself and your organization, and maybe tell us a little bit about what is anchoring you as to why you're doing this work this season. What is anchoring you? This is a really beautiful, challenging opportunity for folks who've been leading movement work for generations, the confluence of the COVID uprisings, and then what feels like a rapidly changing landscape. Every day there is something new to wrap your head around and tackle around how to bring change in our communities. Um, I welcome any of you to jump in. Tell us who you are, your organization, and why are you doing this work in this season? I'll go ahead and start just because I'm so super excited to be on this podcast with you, Manuela. We've known each other since college. And then you just assembled the most amazing group of people. I have so much love and respect for Pastor Mike and Jenny, Devon Bogan. So just really appreciative to be a part of this podcast. My name is Zach Norris. I'm the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. We were founded in 1996 and named after Ella Baker, who's a brilliant Black woman, a leader in decades of struggle for freedom for all people. And we try to build on her legacy by advancing a books, not bars, jobs, not jails, health care, and housing, not handcuffs agenda. So we like alliteration and we like justice and we are fighting for freedom. And I came to this work in some ways, you know, part of what led me to this work was being at Harvard and seeing young people get treated so differently for doing some of the same things that kids in East Oakland were doing, but with much different outcomes. So when they got into a fight or were using and abusing drugs, they typically got the services, supports, counseling they needed. The cynical side of me says that, you know, Harvard was just trying to maintain their high graduation rates, but at least from the the perspective, it looked like they were believing that each young person was more than their worst mistake. And I think that shouldn't be true just at, you know, Ivy League colleges, but should be true regardless of your zip code, regardless of where you come from. And so seeing those disparities is really what led me to this work at the Ella Baker Center. Thank you so much, Zach. Um, representing Oakland and Bay Area, right, Zach? That's right. That's right. <laughs> East Oakland. East Oakland, represent. 
Jenny, do you want to go next and tell us about what it's like out in Chi-Town? Sure. Hi, everyone. And thanks, Manuela, for bringing us together today. So my name is Jenny Arwadi, and I'm co-director of Communities United in Chicago, and also with Voice, which is one of our core alliance building efforts organizing to dismantle the school to prison pipeline in Chicago and across the state. Our work at Communities United, we're a survivor-led organization. Our approach is really deep investment and leadership of black and brown young people and community members to advance healing and justice in our communities. I came to this work and life, you know, through my lived experience as being a survivor, through experiencing family members who were incarcerated and impacted by the criminal justice system and also impacted by immigration enforcement and family separation. And why I've stayed in the work is because growing up, my family had no connection to organizing, to organizations that were building power and working to advance change. And it's really been by being part of this work and building community and building power and changing unjust systems that I've been able to advance my personal um, journey of healing and also connect with others who are doing the same. What anchors me, um, I'm here and today with the duality that we often face of you know, being eternally hopeful, right, in terms of the new path that we're all charting and also with real grief at the devastating loss of life that we continue to face. And I just wanted to say just one word in loving memory of um, Caleb Breed. And I guess what I'll ask is, it's hard for me to still hold myself together where I'm going to a funeral this afternoon. Um, Caleb Reed passed away last week at age 17 from gun violence. He was a core leader. Um, of our organization who was leading work to divest from police and schools as a start right to the more holistic transformation um, and vision for his community and city that he sought. And he was just at that point of really understanding and experience that inescapable energy that comes from really believing that you have the power, right, and ability to create change. And his memory, I've been inspired by so many people who never met him, who have been so deeply touched um, by his message of leading with love, leading with healing, leading with restoration, and being unapologetic in our demands for justice. And that is what anchors and grounds me in this work and moving forward. So thank you, Jenny, for your introduction. And thank you for sharing the reality of what it means to be an organizer in communities. You're holding people's grief, you're providing care, you're a first responder, you're educating, you're developing leadership. There's so many different hats that leaders like you and others are always asked to share. And, you know, it's interesting to always be on this side of philanthropy, continuing to still make the case for why resourcing the healing justice approaches that y'all are leading with is still important. Especially in light of COVID and uprisings, it's so shocking to me that many institutions don't believe that investment is necessary when it's actually integral and folks have been providing it unseen, unresourced for generations. So we want to hold you and Caleb's family in our hearts and our care and know that also one of your fellow movement partners also lost a young person last week. And it's just, it's overwhelming. The level of grief is right here. And I, I'm so grateful to you that you were even willing to come today and have this conversation. So I thank you deeply for that. Manuela, it's great to 
uh, see you. It's certainly good to be in listening and hearing distance of Pastor Mike, Zach, and Jenny. This is Devon Bogan, uh, Chief Risk Taker at Advanced Peace. Advanced Peace works to help build healthier, safer, and more just communities by making developmental and healing-centered investments into those who are at the center of gun violence in those communities that we work in. It's a very important thing to be doing, and that's what keeps me grounded, and that's what anchors me. I've always been the personality type to be what I need to be and to do what I need to do in the spaces that I find myself occupying. And so that's what we're doing. And uh, albeit I'm not excited about what what happens in communities where gun violence is most prevalent. I am excited about being in the space and ensuring that investments and resources are in that space and directly uh, connected to those who are rarely connected to those resources, supports, opportunities, and services. And that's what we spend the bulk of our time working to do is to ensure uh, that the folks who are at the center of gunfire are actually tapped uh, for leadership in helping us address the disruption that it creates, the trauma that it creates. So I'm excited to be here to talk more about that today. And Pastor Mike, welcome. Infinite hugs to you. And also want to first extend my warmest and deepest sympathies for the fact that y'all went through what you went through at your church a couple of weeks back. I'm just Happy to have you with us today. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be with everyone. I thank you, Manuela, for gathering us and for your your kind words. It, it has been a hard uh, week or two. I had to move my family out of town for a few weeks because of some security concerns related to the arson at our church. And I think it's for me, you know, reminding me that the trauma that Black folks face in this country is unending and it's multi-layered. And the vulnerability of Black life in general is, in many respects, the reason why I, as a person of some privilege, feel compelled to do this work every day. You know, I grew up in the San Francisco community neighborhoods, Baby Hunters Point, during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. And I didn't know that I was swimming around in such toxic waters until I went away to college and a lot of my friends ended up dead or in jail. And when I was a youth pastor while in college, I was physically and sexually assaulted by some cops. And my young people, the youth group that I was leading at the time, mentioned that this happened to them all the time. And I asked them, well, how come you never brought this to us here at the church? And they said, we didn't think that the church would even respond to this kind of pain that we were experiencing. And so I think for me, the reason why I do this work is because I know that at the intersection of Black life is a kind of ever-present reality of death and victimization that is often ignored by the larger society. And so I share in the, in the important work that we all do. Some of us are frontline interrupters and peacemakers and change agents. Others are doing important community development and policy work. I hope that our contribution around organizing people and institutions to change systems and structures is a unique value add as we overlap in other areas as well. Believing that everything that has ever progressed of consequence in some of our most 
um, impacted communities over over the last several uh, centuries has been because people closest to the pain have stood up and said no more and not on our watch. And we are going to make this current system bend towards uh, a vision of humanity and, and justice. My hope and prayer is as we think about the INVEST conversation, that we see ourselves as an extension of several hundred years of trying to make sure that the wealth of the world, not just this country, but the world is deeply moving closer and closer to the producers of that wealth, and that is the people that make up our communities all across this country and across the world. So glad to be here with you and everyone. Thank you, Pastor Mike. You laid the groundwork beautifully to get us to start talking about this invest conversation, but we can't do that until we actually dissect a little bit of what are the harmful systems that we believe need to be divested from. And so your mention of what seems to be growing presence of death and victimization in our communities, if not growing, at least their visibilization, right? I think one thing we've seen from the COVID-19 pandemic and the recent uprisings is it's only laid to bear and made more visible to others what y'all have been holding and organizing and communities have been actively fighting and building alternatives to. I was wondering if you all could talk a little bit about what messages do these American systems tell our young people in regards to education, justice, and housing? What are the harmful practices that y'all see and messages being communicated to our young people every day? To me, the, the greatest message that I see that I think connects to historical reality is Black folks, brown folks, indigenous folks, poor folks are a problem to be contained, not a solution to be unleashed or resourced. All throughout history, and certainly even more so in this current conversation around investing in the strategies we know work to keep people alive, keep people free, keep people healed, there still is such dissonance among mainstream and even progressive lawmakers and decision makers to even believe that this is a worthy investment, you know, that as a matter of fact, the systems as they exist now see us still largely as the problem. Even we who are quote unquote experts of the solutions that have proven to work, we are still seen as agitators and 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 the rock in the proverbial shoe of progressives attempting to win elections or govern. And so just this idea that we are a problem that needs to be contained rather than a solution that needs to be unleashed, I find works its way out in the criminalization, the uh, erasure, the displacement, and certainly the systemic and structured violence that visits our community. And I would add, Manuela, you're a deficit, not an asset. I think that's a pretty clear message that our young people receive from the systems and that you're a commodity for our disposal and not your community's disposal. This issue of deservability, Mike spoke of not seeing this as a valuable investment. This issue of you don't deserve to be invested in. I think our, our young people continue to get these kinds of messages and a big part of what we're all trying to do is emancipate and liberate them from that. And I guess I would um, just add in terms of not being worthy of love, even our own love for ourselves. And I think that's how 
when we think of healing justice, so much of, again, the lack of investment, the direct assaults on um, the lives of Black and Brown and Indigenous folks, um, it results in young people, our communities, not feeling any of, um, of loving our own selves. And that's a lot of the work of healing and organizing. I might just add that even our framework around investment is rooted in a capitalist system. I think that what we've seen most recently is that this is a system that will send us out to work, that will send our kids to school without regard for their basic safety. I appreciated that Devone identifies as the chief risk taker for advanced peace because in a system where the status quo is that you know, 53 cents of every federal dollar goes to the military. 23 new prisons were built in California and just one new university from 1980 to 2000. The lion's share of resources go to police departments and sheriffs are often the most powerful political entity in municipalities across the country. All of the things that accelerate the morbidity and the mortality of black and brown people are the things that are recession-proof in our society. They are the things that never get cut. Meanwhile, the social safety net continues to get cut. And so this demand, as Pastor Mike has said, in lifting up that Black Lives Matter is so revolutionary because it goes against the grain of so much of how our society is oriented. And I think people are really seeing that in, in stark relief right now because COVID-19 is showing that we don't have the public health infrastructure to really keep us safe. We often talk about mental health, drug use and abuse, school discipline. These are all issues that could be dealt with public health approaches. Violence is an issue that could be dealt with a public health approach. We never thought we needed to say that a global pandemic needed to be dealt with through a public health approach, but leave it to this president to use even a global pandemic as an opportunity to scapegoat communities, as an opportunity to name and blame already marginalized communities. And so I think we are up against a lot, but I think the, the positive is that a lot of people are coming to see this reality in a different way. Thank you, Zach, for definitely naming safety and what does safety mean for communities. And also this container environment where folks are trying to create a different community, right? It's an environment where a federal administration has rendered people disposable, particularly Black, Brown, and Indigenous people disposable. One of the things I'm wondering if you all would want to speak to this a little bit is what is at play that enables the kinds of policies, rhetoric, violence that we have seen growing and increasing attacks against Black and Brown and Indigenous communities, what is, what is facilitating this kind of increased violence? One thing I'll name just briefly is just inequality and poverty, because poverty isn't of itself violence in terms of depriving people, and then poverty also contributes to violence in terms of people being more susceptible to the kind of scapegoating that is occurring under Trump, but obviously has a long, long, deep and tragic history and practice in this country. You know, my kids, we live in upstate New York. 
she asked, how come people don't think they need to wear masks anymore? And she was observing how there was a sense of immunity in this largely middle class, largely white community that we're based in. It was hard to hold the, the contradiction because our family in New York City, our immediate family has lost folks to COVID. At the same time, her friends and the folks in this neighborhood, it's almost as if it was not real. And she noticed the correlation between race and class that was happening there. So I'm just curious, you guys mentioned a little bit poverty. You talk about the role that capitalism has played. Pastor Mike referenced our historical um, origins as a nation, including slavery and our nation's orientation to Black and Indigenous people, that I think that is definitely at play in how we are, um, what are the primary narratives that folks are trying to fight against? I'm still curious to hear what is enabling this kind of cognitive dissonance, active ignorance of science, (laughs) complete and utter disregard of the kind of care and vulnerability of particular communities or elders, and also their power, to your point, Devon, the power and assets that they really are. What else is at play that that is helping facilitate this operating from a structural and systemic level at the level of the state? Add to what Zach said in terms of, of course, the fact that for some, it's still extremely profitable, right? That extreme levels of wealth are being generated off of continued racism in our system off of the continued exploitation of Black communities, of Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. And so when we look at what continues to really fuel the continuation of these systems and expansion of these systems, when we know that they are causing such harm, there are enormous corporate interests at play that influence all levels of government and, again, the messages that are put forth and the money that's being poured into continuing that system as all of us here and folks across the country are working to pursue a different vision of justice. Yeah, I think Jenny just laid it out really well. I'm just going to add this. I just came back from Maine yesterday. My daughter is in school there. And Manuela, like what you experienced in upstate New York, this is probably the whitest state in the union outside of Vermont. And rarely did we see folks wearing masks in public situations. And I know I found myself thinking, wow, arrogance, a spirit of arrogance, spirit of selfishness, and this spirit of sort of entitled power where, you know, no one's going to tell me what to do. I've seen that, and, and I think we probably all have seen that spirit throughout the different media venues that we've had access to in, in states and within communities that sort of reject the, the science, uh, so to speak. So, yeah, I just, I think all of the things that both Zach and Jenny laid out, and I think it breeds the spirit of arrogance, selfishness, and entitlement and power. Yeah, and I'll just bring up the weird by saying, uh, I do believe that we have a, a case study right now of the fruit that is a result of the soil of our country's deep investment in anti-Black racism and Black supremacy and human hierarchy in a multiple kind of set of ways and places at the same time. I, I think that level of investment that this country has made financially, 
from a, a kind of myth or story point of view, a values point of view, has created such a reduced imagination in this country that whenever Black people or marginalized people reach for their divine humanity, it is viewed as an attack on the status quo. I mean, folks saying Black Lives Matter, folks saying Se Se Puede, folks, our Native loved ones, insisting on the, the treaties to be maintained is seen as an attack on white folks when no one's even mentioning a white person's name. We're actually talking about a, a system that needs to be dismantled to save the lives of real people's names. You know, Pookie, Ray Ray, Maria, Jose, or whatever. These are real people, and yet the investment in the subjugation of people continues to be so personalized by so many white interests on both the progressive and the conservative political spectrum. My biggest bone that I have to pick these days is with progressives. Conservatives have demonstrated who they are. And anyone trying to convert a, a, a conservative to believe that our lives are valuable, God bless your, your calling. That's certainly not mine. But progressives, mayors, council members, governors, presidential candidates who still in this moment can't form their lips to say it is better use of the taxpayers' dollars to invest in healing in a pandemic, we should invest in healing in a pandemic, not invest in more police officers, not invest in more jails and prisons, not invest in more punitive responses. What does that say about how progressives view their own constituency? And so this is the greatest challenge I believe we have, and it is not a new challenge, it is a historical challenge. Dr. King talked about the problem of the white moderate, right? who can now be expanded to the black moderate and the Latino moderate and the Asian moderate. That moderate still see poor people as the problem to be contained. Why don't y'all just be quiet, disappear, struggle for your survival in silence, and let the rest of us go on our merry way as we continue to eat from the fruit of the white supremacist kind of trees that are around us. And so I do believe that we have to continue to become much more clear about the, the ways in which our complicity as progressives and other directly impacted people in maintaining the status quo creates the fuel whereby the more dastardly elements of our society, white supremacists and those who have a diabolical plan for our families and our future, they are able to advance their agenda because of the milquetoast, unimaginative, complicity of too many progressive so-called and liberals who just want to maintain status quo until their turn to become the most powerful person in the room comes up. It's a very and, deep challenge I think we have to continue to name. And what cracks me up about it is if you launch a campaign and do civil disobedience and secure a campaign and win something, those same people that fought against you will later say, but we support XYZ and we have this many youth programs and we have this, that, and the yeah. other. And it, it was as a result of literally community organizers and activists saying you have to divest and you have to invest in young people. But those same probation chiefs and others will then go back and say, well, we give seven million. And knowing that they fought tooth and nail <laughs> against the tooth thing in the first 
I don't mean to pounce on this too much, but I, you know, Sherilyn Eiffel retweeted something yesterday that just had me sent me to bed so angry because Fox and Friends were sharing this analysis that the problem with the activism today is that it was not as as even killed and approachable as the activism of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That back in that day, we could sit down with Dr. King and talk to Dr. King. And even if we didn't agree with Dr. King, it wasn't just so, so antagonistic. And it's just this kind of re, uh, retelling of history and the present that actually robs us of the ability to speak in a truthful manner about how hard change is to make and how timid our elected officials are in making sure the change happens in real time. We should not have to convert black elected officials to defund the police. We should not have to convert Latino and Asian elected officials to fully fund schools. But the fact that we have to do that, to me, is a demonstration of the ways in which the imagination of this country is so devoid and so so lacking. And I'm tickled, Michael, and just this lack of acknowledgement of the last 40, 50 years and just how exhausting, how exhausting I might be. <laughs> Maybe Martin, wasn't, maybe Martin wasn't as exhausted as I was uh, or am because of, of the lack of growth and the lack of opportunity since that time. My father is 75 years old, and my greatest challenge with his aging is his anger. And I know what that's about. Here's a 75-year-old man looking back at his life and seeing what's happening today in 2020 going, what the f- is going on and excuse my language but i know that's exactly where his mindset is is how can this be happening to us today after all of that work back then and all of the work that's come from back then to now how can this be acknowledge my exhaustion mm, facts facts and that's how i'm starting to preach on sundays the vote hey, with man, all the metaphors mental health man i'm telling you my father's <laughs> mental health concerns me and we should be concerned about our elders mental health in the context of the experiences they've had years and the work they've put in the 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 time the energy the blood the tears the sacrifice the sweat that they put in and what they have in front of them right now i mean acknowledge our pain acknowledge the exhaustion i mean come on come on Greetings. Welcome to Out of the Margins podcast. I am your host and director of the Andrews Family Fund, Manuela Arciniegas. Recorded in September of 2020, we're happy to share part one of our two-part podcast. Don't forget to tune into part two, where we continue to learn about why we must abolish harmful systems, divest public dollars from ballooning police budgets, and build healthy, safe, vibrant communities for all. Thank you for joining us. Losing all humanity, they fire at our family. Our flow will be the remedy, cause water got no enemy. Now I ain't commit no felony. What's that issue telling me? You don't know the man I plan to be. Gotta go home to my family.